0: It's Thursday, August twenty-sixth. From the Recount and iHeart Radio, this is the News Items podcast, based loosely on my newsletter, News Items. I'm John Ellis. You don't really appreciate how well your brain works until it stops doing so. My guest today knows this firsthand. In two thousand nine, a reporter from the New York Post named Susanna Cahalan suffered a frightening set of psychotic symptoms, losing touch with reality and alienating friends and loved ones. Soon she would be diagnosed with a type of autoimmune encephalitis. Her immune system was basically attacking her brain. After recovering, she wrote a book about her experience, Brain on Fire, which has sold over one million copies. Susanna and I go back a ways. Her book helped me through a similar autoimmune disease. In my case, my body was attacking both my brain and my heart. We both recovered under the care of the same doctor, Soel Najjar, who heads up the neurology department at Lenox Hill Hospital. So Susanna asked me a few questions as well. We then talk about her second book, which is about psychiatry, and about a third title, which she's working on now. Here we go. Hello, Susanna. Hi. Welcome to the podcast.
1: It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: We always start this with the uh, there to here question. So let's start. You grew up in New Jersey, and uh, how did you get to the New York Post?
1: Oh, gosh. Well, I was 17 when I started at the Post. I started as an intern. And eventually graduated to become a copy kid, which I don't think they call I'm not sure if they refer to people as copy kids anymore, but that's what they referred to me back then. And remember, this was a time when we, we still had a smoking room
0: right. at the New York Post. The right. so. <laughs> good old days.
1: Exactly.
0: <laughs> and what, what did a copy kid do?
1: A yeah, copy kid literally made photocopies of, of pages of proofs and passed them out. Got a lot of coffee. I got um, a few people some like brisket sandwiches that was very popular from the local wow. deli. And I, you know, at various points would um, sometimes bring loose bills to the local bar, Langens, which I'm sure you know, Langens.
0: Very well. Yeah.
1: Uh, yeah. To some kind of uh, high profile columnist when they needed to get some cab money home. So that was what my job as a copy kid was.
0: And then you were a full fledged reporter, right? You were on staff reporter.
1: Yeah, yeah. Before I graduated college, I landed this very big interview with a kidnapper who, it was a very strange story, who had... Kidnapped one child for several years and then um, kidnapped another child. And when they discovered the second child, they realized, oh my gosh, he's had this other kid um, held hostage for years. And so I got the first interview with him behind bars in St. Louis. So I had this kind of big, big scoop and then was hired on as a full-time reporter for the Sunday paper doing, I mean, gosh, everything from covering murders to following Lindsay Lohan around me packing district to going undercover as a stripper. I mean, all these various bizarre moments in my career.
0: And then something happened, right?
1: Right. In 2009. Uh So I was just recently hired on as a reporter. I started to feel, um, honestly, just not like myself, just Mm -hmm. really out of it, really depressed and and kind of fluctuating mood to the point where my colleagues noticed there was a, a massive change. I also just didn't have the drive for my job, which I really, I mean, I had dreamed about being a reporter for many years. And then all of a sudden I just lost any enthusiasm for it. And, you know, all these things were happening at once and my behavior started to get stranger and stranger to the point where people in the newsroom really started to take notice. My last interview was with John Walsh from America's Most Wanted. And Uh I completely botched that. I mean, laughed in his face in a way that was totally inappropriate. And, uh, that night I had, a my first in a series of seizures. Hmm. And it was my boyfriend at the time who, who noticed it. And actually, you know, I was lucky that he was there. He, he got me to a hospital and would uh, you know, they let, let me go the same night. There was a kind of assumption that, oh, she probably took drugs or she was drinking or, you know, at the time I was 23 years old. So, um, right. you know, the assumption was something related to that. And so I was let go. And from there, my behavior started to worsen and I even, um, I had more seizures and, you know, went to various doctors who threw out a variety of diagnoses, many of them psychiatric in nature. I think the prevailing diagnosis at the time was bipolar
0: disorder. Uh huh. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with Susanna Cahalan. And you ended up in the care of Dr. Soel Najar, the chair of neurology at Lenox Hill Hospital. How did that happen? Because at first you go through all of these medical examinations, which kind of miss the mark, to say the least. One says depression, another says bipolar disorder, another schizophrenia. You're sort of ping-ponging around the medical system.
1: Well, you know, the seizures really saved my life, I would say. Um, So, you know, after having a variety of seizures following the first initial one, uh, my mom really championed for me to get some help. And she kept going back to, to a doctor who really discounted me. And you know, my medical records actually had mistook how much I was drinking a day and had written down that I was drinking two bottles of wine per night. In fact, I had said two glasses of wine. So he had really made a decision about that my behavior was causing this. But my mom really kept pushing. And luckily, there was a bed open at NYU Medical Center I was put on in the epilepsy unit there for uh-huh. several weeks, and, and that's where Dr. Najjar was at the time, and so that's where I, I got so lucky to kind of cross paths with him. At the time when Dr. Najjar entered the case, I had been in the hospital for over two weeks, and I was decompensating, so I had initially come in with the, those acute kind of psychosis. I was hallucinating. I was delusional. I was paranoid. All those things. I was fighting and punching nurses. I was a terrible patient. Right. And by the time that Dr. Najar came on the case, I actually was the opposite. I was nothing. I was right. I was catatonic.
0: And so you come under his care and there's a famous story he asked you to draw a clock. Tell us that one.
1: Gosh. So he gave me a piece of paper. And he asked me to, to draw a clock. And at this point, you know, I was, I was really far gone. So it took me a long time to even draw a circle. But I drew a circle. I drew the numbers. And then um, when he looked down at the page, I mean, I, I, I think it was an audible gasp. He, he saw all the numbers 1 through 12 on the right-hand side. I mean, completely squished on the right-hand side of the clock, completely neglecting the left side, entirely blank. Right. And that showed to him that the right side of the brain, which is responsible for the left field of vision, was impaired in some ways. And you know, it was around that time he had become interested in this new field, this burgeoning field of autoimmune encephalitis, which was really new. And you really had to be up on the new studies to realize what was going on. And luckily, he had read a, a recent study. I think it was about five women- who had had psychosis and delusions and catatonia, in some cases, coma and death. And they all ended up having these autoantibodies that targeted the brain. Right. And so since he had seen this study, this tiny little study, he knew enough to send my spinal serum to the University of Pennsylvania. And I became the 219th person in the world to be diagnosed with this newly discovered form of autoimmune encephalitis. Yeah. I think yours it's very different but you know i was thinking about when i was coming on here i thought how did we first meet and it was definitely through the, this topic but ha- do you recall yeah. do you recall how we I first... do
0: i like you i i mean i you know you had to go back and sort of investigate your life right to, mm-hmm. uh, to write the book brain on fire and the reconstruction of what occurred to me which was i i had come back from my very first pt appointment after having back surgery and the next thing i knew I was in a coma at Lenox Hill Hospital, and I didn't know that, but right. they put me in an induced coma or whatever it's called. And mm-hmm. and two days later, I wake up, and there's this guy standing over me who turns out to be the president of Lenox Hill Hospital or the chief executive or whatever, and he has a copy of your book.
1: Oh, my God.
0: And he says, you need to read this book. <laughs> so I did. And uh, I saw in the, you know, on the jacket cover that you had worked for the New York Post and I knew Maggie Haberman had worked at the New York Post. Yes. So I remembered who Maggie Haberman was and she actually came and visited me again and again and again in the hospital, which I'll, I'll never forget and never forget to appreciate that she did that because she was pretty busy (laughs) at the time. (laughs) But anyway, so I, I emailed uh, Maggie and said, you know, this woman, and then I I emailed you, and that's how we first met.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. I mean, I, I think it's so interesting because we were in very different spots in our lives when we had this happen. And I think the illness itself presented differently. Like, did you have the psychosis that I did, did not? You, you did not. You didn't experience that.
0: No. I the thing that was different in my case is that I I'd had the surgery, the back surgery in early March. Mm. I had the seizures. In early May.
1: Well, what what kind of symptoms did you exhibit?
0: Oh, uh, you know, sort of memory loss mm. and, you know, kind of missing stuff, I guess mm. would be the short answer. I didn't have the physical, you know, drooling or, you know, the things mm-hmm. associated with it. But we were living in Mount Kisco, New York at the time. So I go to... Northern Westchester Hospital, and the head nurse there said, This is way beyond our ken. You got to get him to a major medical center. And they wanted to take me to the Westchester Medical Center because it was closest, not because, you know. But my wife said, No, we're not going there. We're going to New York. And she called my back surgeon. And said, what do I do? And he said, Dr. Najar, I'll make sure he's there. I mean, I was, I had the seizure and I was under Dr. Najar's care, you know, within eight hours. It's amazing. It's the luckiest break I've ever gotten. Yeah. And, you know, I credit him first and foremost, but I also credit uh, your book because it really helped me under I mean, our disease are not exactly alike but they are both autoimmune diseases. And, you know, it really helped me understand what happened. And and reading your story gave me a real sense of optimism that, you know, you could get through this and you could come out the other side. I love the quote you had about the question of whether you had 90% of your faculties back. And you were like, without that other 10%, I'm gone.
1: (laughs) Yeah, without the 10%, I mean, I need every little teeny ounce of those percentage. I need a... If I don't have my coffee in the morning, I drop probably five percent. So, yeah, I I need that. I need every one of those, those percentage points.
0: I mean, one of the great things about the disease, by the way, yeah. is I know what
1: you're going to say you can't remember.
0: You can't. I'm sorry. Really, did I? Oh, yeah. Sorry. Oh, that's I, terrible. I can't remember, you know? I'm like, can I go
1: back? Like. 20 years now and apologize for things I did in the past. (laughs) It's like it was just because of that autoimmune disease. What can I do?
0: (laughs) It is the best.
1: Was I mean to you in kindergarten? You know what? Autoimmune disease.
0: (laughs) But anyway, you have to go basically report your own life, right? Yeah. And you went back and reported your own life for this book. I know you wrote the piece about your experience for the New York Post, which mm-hmm. sold out the New York Post, I think it was on that Sunday, right? And must have captured the attention of publisher, right? Obviously.
1: Well, you know, the people that captured the attention of were other people who had autoimmune diseases or were undiagnosed. That was who, it, I mean, the amount of emails and phone calls that I got. I've right. never written an article that had that much kind of personal reaction. Right. And after that I went on the Today show and that obviously expanded it. But it was interesting. It wasn't as if publishers were knocking down my door at all. Really? No. You know, the reaction from a lot of people were it's too esoteric, it's too rare, no one's going to relate to it. And it was it, they were soundingly wrong. You know, what was amazing about brain on fire and that success was that not only did I reach people like you who had the very similar experience of having an autoimmune encephalitis,
0: right. but it
1: was, I mean, it reached people who had strokes. It reached people who had were heartbroken. I mean, it was people who have ever felt, whoever had a moment in their lives of kind of before and after moment of not feeling like themselves, of disassociation, of loss of self, anyone who's had that, which, which we all have, I, it really seemed like they could relate to that, that kind of otherness that people feel, people can feel inside their own bodies. I mean, I just wanted to write the book. I was hoping it would help people like you. I also wanted to use it as an opportunity to mind my experience and understand it more and understand the science. Right. You know, I always wanted to write a book, you know, it was kind of like right. a book topic fell on my lap, you know? Right. Those are the reasons why I wrote it. I never ever thought that it would sell a million copies. Like that's not something that crossed your mind was even in the remote (laughs) realm of possibility for me. And I don't think the publisher thought it would. It would either, honestly.
0: Probably not, right? Yeah. (laughs) Did you do another tour for the paperback?
1: Oh, I did a huge tour for the paperback. Yeah, and it was often somewhat overwhelming because I realized through you know the tour and my access to you know readers how much pain there is out there, how many people are suffering, how many people aren't getting diagnoses or getting what, what they feel are incorrect diagnoses, how much the medical system is failing people. That's what I started to realize when I was on tour. And it was a lot. And they were really looking at Brain on Fire as a kind of beacon. And sometimes me directly as someone who could be a beacon where I'm not a doctor and I'm not a patient advocate. So sometimes I was put in positions of you know, wanting to help people and and not being able to, because I just don't have the expertise. Um, So there was a lot of crying. (laughs) There was a lot of, and sometimes, you know, like moments where it was uncomfortable because I think I was a symbol of something.
0: It becomes who you are in a weird way, right?
1: A little bit. And you also don't want to misrepresent yourself. And in the beginning, especially in the beginning, I didn't realize that I had to be careful Right. Because I I was giving my cell phone number out. I was talking to, you know, I was talking to everyone. I was, and I was actually overdoing it. And there was a, a time in particular when I was talking to a husband and wife. The wife had autoimmune encephalitis. And I was kind of naive and a little bit arrogant, I think, mm-hmm. about about recovery. Right. And I, I said things like, well, now that you have the answer, she's going to be fine. Like I was, I recovered, full, you know, and she ended up dying. Mm. And um, the husband called me hysterically angry
0: and yelling at
1: me like how dare you you know and I realized at that point that I there was a limit I was actually not being fair to the people I was engaging with because I was misrepresenting my own abilities to help them really you know yeah I I can't solve your problem in that way I I could write (laughs) I don't have anything else to offer
0: all right we're going to take another quick break here to hear from our sponsors and we'll be right back with Susanna Cahalan So you wrote The Great Pretender, your second book. Yes. We have to give you a chance to tell us about that. Another astonishing piece of reporting, I must say. Um, Thank you. Tell us about The Great Pretender.
1: They're so hand-in-hand, Brain on Fire and The Great Pretender. I actually came up with the idea for The Great Pretender while I was on book tour for Brain on Fire. Uh So I I was going out with um, a few neuroscientists who study the NMDA receptor, which in my case was the receptor that is affected by the illness. Mm -hmm. And um, they study NMDA receptor dysfunction in people with schizophrenia. And so... I was telling them stories of you know at the time I was doing in addition to doing um, a tour book tour I was also doing a lot of grand rounds at hospitals uh, medical centers Mm -hmm. and one in particular really haunted me I went to a uh, psychiatric hospital in North Carolina and I presented on my case which is a strange thing when you know usually grand rounds doctors present on the cases but I presented my my own case right and afterwards a doctor came up to me and said that he really recognized my story in one of his patients. And I kept in contact with the doctor and and found out that this woman, similar age to me, a lot of similar profile, was eventually diagnosed with autoimmune encephalitis, the same kind that I had. But the big difference between us was that uh, whereas... I was diagnosed after about a month in the hospital. She had been in and out of the psychiatric system for two years, <sighs> and she had a diagnosis of schizophrenia, like a hardcore diagnosis of schizophrenia. And, you know, by the time they got to her, her recovery would not look like mine. And and her doctor basically said that, you know, she's she recovered some but she would kind of operate the rest of her life as a permanent child. Those were his words. Right. And that was really astounding to me and pretty upsetting. And I told this to those neuroscientists I I met on tour, and one of them just said to me kind of as an offhand way, you know, it's kind of like you're a modern-day pseudo-patient. And I had no idea what she was talking about. And she said, well, there was this study where people went undercover in psychiatric hospitals and pretended to hear voices, and it kind of questioned the nature of diagnosis. Is there validity underlying psychiatric diagnosis? I thought, that's interesting. And so I looked it up, and the study itself was called On Being Sane and in Insane Places. Right. And it, it was written by Stanford professor uh, David Rosenhan, and um, he and seven others went undercover in psychiatric hospitals around the country and presented with basically just, I hear a voice that says thud. And based on that, they were all misdiagnosed with schizophrenia. And so it was a black eye for the history of psychiatry. And just, it really allowed me to kind of position autoimmune encephalitis, at least my version where psychosis is so prevalent, and so, so present. It's such a big part of it, and kind of situated into that history of, of psychiatry because psychiatry and neurology has have always made kind of strange bedfellows. Right. And a lot of diagnoses that we think of as neurological or organic started as psychiatric conditions. Like Alzheimer's, is one example. Syphilis is another example. So I thought, where does my illness? Kind of land on this continuum, and how do we tell the difference between sanity and insanity? And these are all questions that the study explores. And so the book itself was born out of that conversation, and I start to um I started as a fan of the study and was really excited by the study and really saw myself in the study. And I started to dig into the study. The person who wrote it passed away before I started. That this study, which was a landmark—I mean, a foundational text in the history of psychiatry—published in Science, one of the most premier medical journals in the world. As I started to kind of dig into it, I started to realize that nothing was really as it seemed, and there was a lot of misinformation. There was a little bit of fraud thrown in, and it became a kind of um, a kind of science science mystery um, right
0: right it's a great detective story
1: I never anticipated that that would happen at right. and it took me six years and I didn't anticipate that would happen either
0: so did you you found what two of the pseudo patients if you will yes
1: yeah, so I was able to track down two and then one person who was a footnote so David Rosenhan did in fact go undercover the person who wrote right. who wrote um, the study and then I found one of his graduate students And I really believe, and it's really cemented in since the book has been out now for, gosh, nearly two years. Right. No one has come forward to me saying, oh, my mom was one or I was one, too. You know, it's cemented this feeling that I think that he made up the rest of the study. That is, I mean, included in every history of psychiatry. I mean, there's a little hundred-page history of psychiatry for dummies right. that um, has a whole page dedicated to this study. So it's a really important study, right. and I I think that the bulk of it was made up. Unfortunately, it, you know, there's a lot of fraud in science, you know, and yeah. it's and it was it's an uncomfortable place because unfortunately, there's a lot of public, you know, public opinion about science has eroded and you don't want to necessarily be a part of that erosion. You know, science saved my life. (laughs) (laughs) Cutting edge neuroscience saved my life. But being circumspect, being aware of the limitations and aware of the kind of um, bad incentives that there are in medicine to publish, you know, you have to be aware. You have to be a, a smart consumer. And I think this book really taught me that
0: in a deep way. You're working on a third book. I don't want to jinx it, but can you tell us what the what it's about, yeah, at least?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So and kind of born out of these two books, it's, it's a pivot, but there's a relation. Um, I wrote about psychedelics in both of my books in small ways. In Brain on Fire, I talk about ketamine and PCP. Right. Ketamine and PCP would not be considered. I mean, some people consider ketamine a uh, psychedelic. Most people don't, but they're at least altered consciousness. But um, Ketamine affects the same receptor in the brain as I was affected in my illness. And then in The Great Pretender, I talked about psychiatric hospitals and psychiatric architecture. And actually, there's a famous psychiatrist in the history of psychedelics called Humphrey Osmond, who um, designed a lot of psychiatric hospitals under the influence of psychedelics, and he actually had the architect he was working with take psychedelics to understand the experience of psychosis. Because there, at the time, there was a feeling that psychedelics, specifically LSD, actually mimicked psychosis. Um, that, right. that feeling is not really as in vogue anymore. But so psychedelics have kind of been in my consciousness, and I've been personally interested in them as they're nearing further and further towards um, legalization. Right. Right. So uh, I knew I wanted to pursue something in that in that realm, you know, both personally and maybe professionally, and. Obviously, in the history of, of psychedelics, you, you come across uh, Timothy Leary. And as I started to dive into Timothy Leary, I became aware of his uh, of one of his wives, a woman named Rosemary Woodruff Leary, who's kind of this unsung hero in the history of psychedelics, as many women are, the kind of history of psychedelics. There are very few women that are known, but there are a lot of very important women in that history. So I'm talking about Rosemary kind of using her story as a way to talk about women in general in psychedelics, in talking about power imbalances in, psych- in psychedelic use, and talking about the potentials, the limitations that's going on today. So we have a lot to learn about that kind of first wave um, of LSD psychedelic revolution that went on in the 60s, 50s and 60s, really, and then what that has to teach us about today. So that's, that's where I am. I'm, in the, I'm just in the research stage. It's a very fun research book to research because there's a lot of just a lot of real great moments um, in her life like the first picture I saw of her she was in a bed-in with John Lennon and Yoko Ono so (laughs) this is it's very fun
0: and did she know the the Grateful Dead and all oh yeah yeah oh yeah it's got that whole. I mean, it's
1: like it's. Oh, she's almost like a Zelig. I mean, right. everyone from that era it's almost like a. Sometimes I have to, I have to be very much aware because it, I don't want it to be a cliche of like, oh, then now here's Jerry Garcia popping in. <laughs> and, you know, I just I don't. Uh, you know, Abby Hoffman over here. Like it's okay. You know, I, mean, I, I want I wanted to speak to the present moment, but I'm telling you, I mean, every person you can think of from that era rubbed shoulders with her at the very least, or got high with her at the very least.
0: Well, Susanna, thank you a million times for doing this. We really appreciate it.
1: Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: And uh, we will have lunch in New York City someday soon.
1: I would love that. Thank you. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for tuning into the News Items Podcast. The podcast is based on my newsletter, which is available at newsitems.substack.com. News Items is produced by Christian Castro russell Pierre Bienname, Allie Rogers, and Megan Burney. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby and our recording engineer was Ben McNamara. We'll see you next week.